Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ways of Working podcast. I am your host, Adam Thackeray, and today I have the great pleasure of having Anna Fote uh, join us today. Uh, she's just an amazing woman, and I was very excited to have her on. Um, so Anna wants to live in a world where changing the status quo isn't a wild dream, but an achievable reality. Uh, she is an industry expert on sales, marketing, and alliances, and Anna joined RIM, also known as BlackBerry, in 1999 when it was pre-300 employees and grew with the company, executing deals with IBM, Visa, MasterCard in her tenure. In 2011, when BlackBerry had grown to 16,000 employees, she left to join IBM as the worldwide managing editor of mobile-first platform leading content digital marketing strategy. In 2016, she was invited to the executive in residence for the first cohort of the Fierce Founders Accelerator at Communitech. Uh, Communitech is in Waterloo, Canada. Uh, great establishment, by the way. Uh, she today works at one of Canada's major insurances, insurers, advising chief transformation officer on the topic of digital transformation, albeit the hottest topic right now, likely, uh, besides COVID, maybe. Um, she earned a BA in English literature from the University of Waterloo and now teaches design thinking as well at Western University. Highly recommended course, suggest you take it. Uh, she's a best-selling author on the topic of design thinking and was named BetaKit's top 30 women to watch in technology. When she's not hustling for the next deal or taking or talking to entrepreneurs, you can find her either sipping wine with friends or locked in a hot yoga class trying to find that elusive balance. So without further ado, let's get started. I'd like to welcome Anna Folk. So today we have Anna Fote on. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for joining. Obviously, we've been trying to do this for a very long time, and kids are well, and you're back from you know bear country now, and situated back at home, and so <laughs> we 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 get to to finally do this. So I want to jump right in, and and you know when you and I were talking, and you provided obviously a, a bio which was great. It talks about you know you want to live in a world where changing the status quo isn't a wild dream but an achievable reality. So talk to me about that, because I think that's important more now than ever. So I think, you know, change is hard. A human nature is kind of status quo, and, and I understand that. And it's comfortable in many, many ways. It's like a nice, warm, you know, comforter that you wrap yourself around. And God knows in these days of COVID, I want to jump in my bed and put the covers over my head and hope it all goes away. But the reality is that is the worst possible thing that anyone could do in this time. And so, you know, the more I think people see the benefits of change and the lack of risk of change and maybe some risk in maintaining the status quo, the more we're kind of poised to more easily create the future that we want. Because I think people generally are dissatisfied with a whole bunch of things and then at the same time don't want to change because they, th there's this chasm where they go, oh my God, like I know this thing, but if I go over here, I'm like in the woods and I don't have a map and it's mm -hmm. scary. So I'm just going to keep staying where I'm really unhappy. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think it's such a, um, it's such a zero sum game. And I think COVID and like all these things that are changing as of late, I'm hopeful might create the conditions where people say, you know what, it is comfortable where I am, but I can kind of see how the future could be different and better. And I'm willing to get a little uncomfortable mm -hmm. to see, to reap a benefit, the future benefit that I, I think I desire. Cool. And so do you think that's why transformations are going to be different now? Like obviously digital transformation, monster buzzword or 
two buzzwords, I guess, right now. Do you think that is going to be one of the catalysts now? Is that what's different? Or what do you think is different now? Because people really seem to be, you know, taking action versus just sitting on it. Because transformations have been happening for decades with, you know, in various regards. But is this different now? And, and if so, what, what do you think is going to be the, the big push for it over the next, you know, one to three years? So I think what's different is it's very, it's come into clear focus what the downside of not changing is. So the risk of changing still exists, yeah. but the downside of doing nothing is much more clear. So, you know, in, in my industry insurance, we talked about having e-signature for many years yeah. and we all kind of agreed it was a good thing to do and we probably should do it and, but it's hard and we're not quite sure and who's going to fund it and, 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 and COVID hit. And it's like, if we don't do this, we will lose business. We will right. not be able to book business. So all of a sudden, all those, not excuses, they're, they're legitimate, right? It's hard. Yeah. It does cost money. It takes people. It's, you know, you got to organize people. So I don't want to diminish that. But all of a sudden, the downside of not doing it came into yeah. super clear focus and it got done super fast because mm -hmm. it's possible. Um, so I'm hoping those sorts of those sorts of ways of thinking about problems yeah. um, extend because I think there's like a hundred e-signature cases where we should just do the damn thing. Like yeah. there's very little downside, there's massive upside. So let's just get it done. Yeah. Huge. I, I love e-signature like the, uh, you know, even working with, you know, yes, doing insurance claims and then also even signing contractual agreements of any sort now, like, you know, whenever I do engagements with clients, it's, I need to do it. And there, and in the past, they have literally sent me a 50 page PDF uh, of a legal document, which is one to read it. And then two to actually initial each one, scan it, send it all back. So you get that back and forth and time is money and that's a colossal waste of time. So, you know, to your point, the insurance companies or whoever is losing money hand over fist when you can implement something, especially technology that's been around a very long time. So, you know, you're, you're an executive at Sun Knife, you know, advising on digital transformation. Um, you're also actively involved in healthcare and a lot of the transformation initiatives and things that are going on right now. How do you think the similarities, you know, or are there similarities that exist between, you know, those two industries? Um, because we're hearing a lot about healthcare now. I was just on a, a call yesterday about a new up and coming one about nurses. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of really great things happening. Um, but talk to me about some of the similarities and, you know, where you may see some of the problems there. So there's tons of similarities. I think both big um, entrenched businesses have these system of record mainframe applications that are beasts. They're hard to move from and they really legitimately throttle the ability to do customer facing innovation. Because if, you know, your foundation is a mainframe that's not very agile, you know, you just limit your possibilities. And yeah. the very same thing we're seeing in healthcare. I think you know, no one in pu public health is underfunded and they have a, you know, ancient system. It makes our mainframes, you know, it makes COBOL look not so bad. Um, and, but, and everyone's like, well, why spend the money? Why spend the money? Why spend the money? And now we're in the middle of a crisis where what's ending up happening is we're throwing a massive amount of human resources at what should be a tech problem. But because we didn't do any of that homework for 20 years, we're stuck with this, you know, white elephant of a system. I think Jane Philpott's trying to do stuff, but you and I both know when you're right in the middle of a crisis, it's probably yeah. not the best time to yeah. rip the bandaid off and start changing things. No. So I'm sympathetic to what they're trying to do to duct tape and glue this whole thing together. Yeah. But it, it's why we're seeing, you know, the delays in the test results coming back. It's why we're under-resourced. It's, it's all these things. 
And so, you know, and, and we are the same, like, we're not going to put a, we're not going to detonate one of our mainframes. No. It's just not a thing. It doesn't make any financial sense. So I think it behooves all of us to try to figure out creative ways to, to do a stopgap, but then kind of acknowledge that we need to fundamentally fix those things. So let's not ever get caught, you know, flat footed like this again, because we know what the, the ramifications are now in we, and we should know them very clearly and directly. So yeah. I think, you know, for people like you and I that kind of sit at this level, we're mm -hmm. running around trying to fix stuff. Yeah. I think people that operate at a higher altitude, yeah. I'm really hopeful that we see much more dramatic leadership to say, this is a hard decision and an expensive decision, but it's one that we're going to make now. So we're not yeah. here again in the future. And, and you think that that optimism is, or sorry, not the optimism, do you think that the, the leadership, because, you know, one of the big uh, fundamental pieces of successful transformations is that the leadership gets it. Like in short, it's like they get it. Like I can say that they're progressive and they're aligned and all, you know, all this other nonsense. But in the end, it's like, does the leadership get it? Are they servant based? Are they really going to drive this forward? Because if so, they're going to need to take that tech debt. They're going to need to have a parallel running piece that is an initiative that is an investment over a multi-year period that is going to require them to invest. And because transformations are always an investment to see realization later. And so do you think that's actually going to happen now? Um, you know, starting with Ontario Health, like obviously across the, the country is a whole other ordeal, but even within the province, like aligning health records and, you know, getting rid of some of these archaic tech pieces or creating the, you know, the necessary APIs or middle layers to interact with it, like all those things, it should be done already, as you said, but it's not. Do you think now they're actually going to do it? Where I think, and I see it both at my day job at Sun Life, and I see it with some of the work that I do in the healthcare space, mm -hmm. I think allowing people that aren't in your space in mm -hmm. is really critical. Yes. So the work that we've done in the Southwest has really been fundamental. It's not me doing it. It's me and a whole bunch of people that actually yeah. know healthcare. So it's me kind of poking them on clinical. It's them asking me about technical. And I think the magic is the glue between those two things. Like these doctors are extremely smart, educated. They understand cl clinical pathways. They don't know tech. Right. I know tech, but I don't, I mean, I don't know how to build a clinical pathway. Yeah. So I think coming together it is really important. And I see the same thing happening. You know, Sun Life made this investment in dialogue to do virtual medicine. Yeah. And I think you can look at that and say, wow, like what does that do to the continuity of, of care for between primary care physicians and their patients. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is to say, there's tons of unrostered patients in the province. So it's great to say everyone should have this, this great fundamental relationship with, with their family doctor. Mm -hmm. The reality is we don't have enough. So there's right. tons of people that don't have one at all. Yeah. So then you kind of go, is it better that someone has some access to care versus none? Yes. And I think people used to think of public insurance or private insurance, sorry, and public health care as these two solitudes. So public health was one thing and private insurance was another thing. Right. But now we're kind of seeing these things merge and I'm very excited. I'm both passionate about protecting public health, yes. but I'm also, I think, not wise is the right word, but optimistic that mm -hmm. maybe there's a way for us to work together to our mutual benefit. Right. So can we help decant surgical wait lists because we know who has paramedical coverage for massage therapy, for example, 
Because again, the reality is if you have a hip surgery, yeah. you know, you probably haven't gotten it and you may not be getting it for a while. Right. So what can we do for you to, collectively? Right. And do you find that it's going to be the, the larger organizations that are really going to have to push this because they have that lobbying power? Or do you feel that there are grassroots opportunities to get involved? Like you and I talked about a little bit about I think there's, Sorry, go ahead. I, I think it's, it's not, a, you need the leadership of a big organization to be humble and have the money to, to move forward. But I don't think that innovation necessarily happens inside that org. I think it is the up and comers and the startups and people that are not from that industry that may more clearly see how to solve the problem. Right. I mean, e-health didn't do a whole heck of a lot while they were functional, mm -hmm. but I think you're seeing startups saying, I have this thing. We yeah. need a buyer. We need a payer in the private system to say, I see what you're doing over here. It matters. I'll pay for it. I'll license it. I'll incorporate it. And the, the big organization needs to be the steward, but they need to be humble enough to allow the people that have some of the innovation to come in. Yeah. So back to leadership again. <laughs> it matters. So one of the things that, you know, in, in, uh, in healthcare that we had talked about was, uh, was governance and how that is interpreted very differently and that back to communication being a number one problem. Um, can you talk a bit about governance? Cause obviously governance in the private sector, um, may mean something totally different in healthcare. Yeah, like when I started um, on these committees, I would kind of sit there and quite frankly, in a room full of people with multiple PhDs. So here I am, little English literature major, like don't even have a science degree, don't even have yeah. a BA in science. Yeah. Sitting at the back, like lip sealed, kind of listening, and I'm watching the interaction between people in the room. Mm -hmm. And there's this very... Um, collaborative kind of consensus kind of approach which was interesting until I realized a lot of it was kind of smiling and nodding and not necessarily moving the ball forward yeah. and they kept having this conversation about we need governance terms and for me coming from kind of how where I come from I'm kind of sitting in this room looking around thinking we don't know what we're doing yet so how would we govern the thing that we don't know we're doing right I said nothing for about six months because I thought this seems to be a thing that I just obviously don't understand. This yeah. is a, a major thing in healthcare that is very different from where I've grown up. Right. Yeah. And finally, after six months, I said to one of the docs I work with, oh, governance for you means who gets to make the decision? <laughs> and he went, yeah. Is that confusing <laughs> to you? And I'm like, oh my God, we've spent like hours talking about this. But you know, it's, there's so many stakeholders, right? It's not one hierarchy, like in a big organization where your SVP or your EVP or the CEO makes the decision. You have CEOs of hospitals, CEOs of, you know, um, community health, you have executive directors. Yeah. They're not necessarily all peers, but they're all stakeholders and they all have a voice. So to try to figure out who's going to get to make that decision is in fact quite complicated. And, you know, for me, I'm not used to asking for permission. Um, I'm certainly not <laughs> used to sitting in a room to, to spend hours and hours and hours to talk about how the basis upon which the decision will be made. I'm used to, this is the outcome, go do it. Right. I don't care how you do it. I don't care who you do it with. Yeah. And I don't care, you know, what it takes to get there, get her done. And so it's a, it's a very different 
kind of environment and each has its own pluses and minuses. You know, I'm not trying to throw shade on the healthcare system. It's a bunch of extremely educated people trying to respectfully make a decision together. I'm used to not a whole lot of respect and like get it done. (laughs) And I don't care how, (laughs) don't complain. Yes. Yes. And so do you find that they'll be, they're going to, they're looking to try and simplify that or find ways because in, in the private world, like from my experience, there's, there comes a point where one of the, you know, foundations or principles is that you need to agree to disagree in order to move the ball forward. Like the, 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 the notion of consensus building is nonsense and it will never get anything done. Um, and I'm not saying the healthcare industry does that, but do you find that they're looking to potentially simplify that or have some sort of mechanism that allows them to, to move things forward, recognizing that what they currently have doesn't necessarily work in its most optimal state? Well, I think just the same way in a big private company and yeah. you know, you, it's like a groove in a record. You kind of get used to doing it a certain way. Yeah. The same thing is true in healthcare. Like this is the way they've always done it. And that's why I think people from outside coming in going, okay, so you, I mean, you could do it that way, but yeah. you could also do it this way over here. And I found people to be really receptive to that. And it's just that they just didn't know that there was a different way. They've only ever done it one way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, so kind of shifting gears then over to the, the private sector, um, the whole notion of innovation and adopting innovation within organizations, unfortunately, is a lot of lip service. It, it you know, the whole, you, you'll see these, you know, innovation organizations or they have these isolated areas within them and, the, and they're in big and large organizations. Obviously, some of them have been quite successful, but a large challenge and, and you see companies that hyper-focus on even trying to bridge the gap between the innovation and the entrepreneurial, you know, hubs and big enterprise. Um, But how do you see companies being successful in doing that now? How do they operationalize it within a large organization? If you can provide examples of stuff from Sun Life or just an overarching perspective, because I find this to be a giant white space where I've seen there's something amazing that's built and it hits the, the engine of the enterprise, if you will, and then it just explodes and dies and goes away because there's pushback. There's, it's change, right? I think um, that you, at Sun Life, I mean, Lumino is a great example. Yeah. We, we yeah. kind of decided that we wanted to build this, how you make Canadians healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were going to do it in a way that was separate from any line of business. So it wasn't like an adjunct to our individual business or an adjunct to our group business. It was its own thing. So right off the hop, everyone kind of went, well, I mean, what is that? And I think there was a a real patience around the vision. And then they had to kind of change the operating model. They had to pull them out of the company. They hired really senior executives to kind of run the thing. They funded it appropriately. They didn't require them to use the the same enterprise tools that the rest of the business used, which was really smart. But -hmm. of course, for everyone in the individual lines of business, it also kind of creates this, what are those guys doing? And like, why did they get to break the rules? (laughs) Um, And so, and for a long time, I think there needed to be a patience around not expecting immediate financial return Mm because that's also a thing. Yes. And so, you know, it's like a culture thing. It's an operating model thing. It's a funding thing. It's a flexibility to be able to build things thing. And, you know, like we said, it's a leadership thing because they've, they've been working on this for years. And yeah. I always try to remind people that 
it, it was not an insignificant task to take a look at all of our claims data, build a database of all the paramedical providers in Canada, start to rank them. Like that is a massive unsexy kind of thing that you got to do fundamentally. Yeah. But they did the work and then the pandemic hit and then it was a relatively easy job. I don't want to say too easy because I know lots of people worked many hours on this, yes. but a relatively easy job to go in and say, let's flip the switch and let our members know what paramedical providers are doing virtual visits. Right. And then let's layer mm -hmm. on technology to allow paramedical providers that don't have that virtual ability. To, we'll give it to them because we know people want it. Yeah. And those things were relatively easy, but the, it's because they did the damn work like three yes. years previous. Yes. yes. And how much of a, an education was that for, like you mentioned, the organization had its challenges. Some, you know, why do these people have privilege versus others? Um, how much education was involved in order to, to shift the culture to get executives to understand that the ROI doesn't come immediately, even to go out to the you know, the enabling of that as well. Like you enabled it in such fast order and educating people of see like, this is the way it needs to be. So you now kind of have the case study all the way through to customers. Like that's a big end to end journey. Uh, what it, and you know, how did that, you know, how do you find education played into that, um, that whole journey? Well, I think when I joined Sun Life three years ago, Kevin Doherty uh, used to be, used to run our Canadian business. Uh, then he was, uh, you know, kind of our head of innovation and a huge proponent and champion of Lumino. And I think provided a lot of air cover and a lot of leadership and just a lot of belief that this was the right thing to do. But when I joined at my altitude, people yeah. would say, oh, that Lumino stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm from the outside in. I'm like, this actually looks really cool. Like, yeah. this looks like a really interesting thing we're doing. Yeah. And, you know, you get I, three years ago, I heard, well, I mean, it doesn't make any money. You know, and I'm like, I mean, I don't know. Is that the purpose of it? Like I was new. I thought, I don't, I think it's very cool. I don't totally understand it, yeah. but I think it's probably right. And then over time, it really was foundational because things like Alexa voice and like mm -hmm. LR digital coach, all of these things, because we had a platform, there yeah. was like a home for these things. Yeah. Then people started to get it. I think a little bit more and it was weird for our customers. Like we had to educate our customers and we, you know, had to do kind of outbound marketing to have inbound interest. And that's very different for us too. We're kind of used to creating materials for a captive agent sales force and third party agents to go sell the stuff. Mm -hmm. it, it was a way for us to connect directly with clients as well. Yeah. Which is a huge data pool that you get, right? Like the insights. And we have this, this asset, like we have 6 million members in Canada and we, we're the biggest claims processor. So we have an enormous amount of claims data that before we had Lumino, I mean, I think actuaries had a field day with it all day long, but I don't think we did enough with it because right. there was, it was just kind of an internal gazing at yeah. your navel kind of exercise. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and that's great because now it can be exposed to uh, obviously keeping in mind privacy and security. Um, but it can be exposed for the right reasons to help benefit the customers because that's that that's the challenge that I always see with data is that people don't know what to do with it. They have so much of it. I was talking to somebody in manufacturing and you know they have sensors going, they have IoT, which I was pleasantly surprised they had all these things going. Um, but then he, he said, well, and this was a CFO, he said, you know, I just don't know what to do with it. Like I have some perspective on it. I have a, a vision of where I'd like to see things, but I, I don't necessarily have the talent. I don't have the tools to aggregate it. You know, the semantic pieces in order to, to associate the, the information. So it's, it's becoming, I, I see that 
really moving forward now and people can actually because that's what helps you lead to be able to give the insights perspectives and i think that's a also a, a part in where people get um, get it wrong if you will where you know it's not replacing you or it's not replacing the work you're doing it's allowing you to do more intelligent work it's allowing you, you as a human to have that at your disposal to then do better work and make better decisions absolutely so you also um do uh you're you're a, a teacher at the university of uh, western ontario for uh, design thinking and so that you had mentioned has been put on pause for a little bit but talk you know a little bit about are you going to be moving to an online uh scenario or what are your what are your thoughts there because obviously there's a tremendous uh, amount of stuff happening in you know the higher education world right now just with the move to online can you talk a little bit about that experience and you know where you see things going yeah it's, it's a tough one for me because i think for me pre-pandemic the idea of putting people in a room and mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of like to operate on a tight rope with no net. Like I kind of go in and go, let's just, cause I don't know, I get a room full of like 40 adults and yeah. sometimes half the, the class is from Canada life. And it's hilarious. They're like, you should come work at Canada life. And I, <laughs> cause I don't tell them where I work and I'm like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> Did you look me up on LinkedIn before you showed up? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it's a group of like very different people from different backgrounds and the last, the last session I taught, about half the class was doing a P project management certification. Oh, so yeah. they had just come off of like scope, time, budget, rules. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, there's no rules. <laughs> so I said to the, the uh, dean, you know, if you could tell me what these guys are actually doing, like is it a, a one-off? Are they part of a certificate? I, I felt like I was a little much on day one for the PM mm -hmm. people. Yeah. So it, it's always this, how do I engage a big group of people? Um, and it's dependent on who's in the room. And for right. me anyways, it's always dependent on me physically being in the room and watching them. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, we've, we've been doing a lot more zoom stuff at Sun Life and we've done some design stuff over zoom and you know, it can be done. I mean, quite frankly to me, it's not the same. It, it can no. be okay, but I, it's not the same. Yeah. So I look at, you know, I kind of look at Western and I just think, I don't know, like, I think we need a little more time to try to figure out what actually works and what's just a swing at bat. Like, you're like, here's how I used to do it. I'm going to try my very best. I'm going to swing at bat and it's, I'm going to, I'm going to strike out. It's just yeah. not good. Well, and it, it's hard, right? Like, cause you, I, they have, it, it's never the same experience, especially with design thinking, like where you're like in there, you need to be immersive. You need to be on the wall drawing stuff and ideating and, getting through the whole, you know, course of it. Um, it's the same with conferences. Like I've been to a number of conferences that like both massive international and to be honest, they were terrible like as an online because, and there were clear things they could have done differently. And, and hopefully they might change that next year because likely we're still going to be in this scenario next year um, to have large ones. But I see smaller ones too, that are, they're, they're, they're having success with it. Right. I think it comes down to, you know, in some cases it just won't work, but in other cases it's the speaker. So someone like yourself who's animated, outgoing, takes the extra effort, you know, and, and is really communi communicating well with the audience and engages the audience and keeps them, you know, really on board with it. I think those will have greater success, but there's those who come on like a standard webinar and, and try to do it and they're, they're going to fall flat. And that's what I've seen with some very big conferences. It's, it's basically a glorified Zoom session, which you have to get over that, right? 
it's just not, you ha- I think I always look upon it as what are you trying to do and then yeah. how best to do it. And if you have a ton of constraints, okay, how best to do it with all those constraints? It's not, well, there's a presentation. So you just port the presentation from, you know, a stage to Zoom. Yeah. And, and you mentioned you, you were doing some design thinking in it and at, um, at Sun Life. Are you looking to adopt it at scale? I know when you're, you know, I, I've watched some of your videos of, of your teaching at, at Western and part of it was that, some people associate design thinking only with product management or only at the, the front of the journey, if you will, whereas it can go much further than that. So are you, yeah. are, you are you applying that at Sun Life or how do you see that uh, taking place there? One of the riskiest and scariest things I did last year, but it ended up turning out extremely well, was we... We have a fundamental problem, and I think every big company does. Yeah. We have IT people that really understand IT, maybe yeah. don't understand the business. Yeah. We have business people that understand the strategy, but maybe not how to get there. Mm-hmm. And so we had this offsite. We brought about 100 people together at Mars, and they were all IT folks. And some yeah. of them, like, COBOL mainframe in the mm-hmm. server room IT folks, yeah. so very yeah. far away from the customer. Yes. And what we were trying to do, like, so I thought about it, like, what are, what's the thing that I'm trying to get them to change and what I'm trying to get them to change and, and why would they change? Right. right. So like what's yes. in it for them? Yeah. So it people have like a bias towards efficiency. They're problem solvers. They mm-hmm. like to get things done. They like to get things done fast and well. Yeah. yeah. And so we did, I did a little trick on them In the morning of this, this day session, I woke up at them and I was like, Oh my God, this could go very horribly wrong. <laughs> I don't, what was I possibly thinking? This is a very poor idea. It must be um, super awesome because whenever those things come about and you think they're <laughs> going to be terrible, they end up being the best thing in the universe. <laughs> yeah. So we, we gave, the, I brought the business and it was funny. Yeah. A lot of people said, what do you mean people from the business are coming to our offsite? <laughs> it's our offsite. And I was like, well, they're our friends and they're actually the ones that we're working for. So it would be good if we brought them. So we brought real problems. I hate these fake design thinking like, oh, let's just all oh, pretend. Yes. Yes. Let's not pretend. Let's pick a real thing. There's enough problems to solve that we could pick a real thing. Yeah. So I had one of the business folks come. They kind of explained the problem. And I just let everyone in the room in table groups work yeah. at it just like they always work at it, yeah. which is go build an architecture. Like don't really concern yourself too much with what we're trying to do or why we're trying to do it. Just figure out how to solve the problem and solve it. Mm-hmm. And so they all solved it and they presented it back to the business person who of course said, well, a little bit of that is good, but you kind of missed the mark over here. And this group over here didn't understand that, you know, and so there was like this, you know, mismatch of, yes. of uh, priorities. So then I brought another business person up. They explained their real problem. And then I said, listen, guys, I kind of tricked you. Like when we did the first exercise, that's kind of how we work, right? Like we don't ask a lot of questions. We put our head down. We try our very best. And sometimes it's just not what we need. Yeah. Now I'm going to do, I'm going to give you personas because the last time you were designing in a void. Yes. And I'm going to split you in half and I want half the table to behave like IT people and the other half of the table to listen to what the business person said and act as the folks at the table that are defending the business outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as they're working, like, uh, and it, they were like, awesome. And the business people said to me, they're so creative. I'm like, yeah, IT people are super creative. They solve problems all day. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. 
And then the IT people that I knew I won when a couple of the IT guys said to me, Anna, why don't we always work this way? I'm like, yes, yes, <laughs> victory, victory, gold star. <laughs> like it, if not, if you take nothing from this day, <laughs> other than that one thing that my mission is accomplished. Thank That's you. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. That's amazing. And it's, it's so nice when that happens, right? And it is, it, that's a problem everywhere. It's a problem everywhere. You hear it all, constantly. That's a whole notion of DevOps. It's a whole notion of, uh, of major problems. And, and well, frankly, why majority of transformations do fail, like $900 billion in failed transformations because nobody talks to each other and nobody thinks about how the other person might be doing their work or how they're doing that. So that's great. That's awesome. And do you, do you find that, the, is that a continued session? So there's, there's another one that, I, um, that actually takes place with smaller groups where um, there's a book called The Phoenix Project and um, it basically mimics The Phoenix Project. So you play the personas in that and it's a live in-person. There's only like 10 or 12 people and, and I've done that for groups as well where you basically have to act it out. So yeah, if you're in tech, I'm gonna throw you in finance or if you are in production operations well you're now head of hr and so everyone's just like <gasps> but i don't like to do that i'm like well i don't know what to tell you but you got to figure it out because you got to you do work for the same company right <laughs> it's funny how people think that other groups that maybe they don't have an affinity for are yeah. so very different than their own group mm -hmm. years ago i did a session at thomson reuters and you know like they asked me to come in and i said okay cool we're doing a design sprint what's the problem and the answer was well, really it's a dysfunctional team. So we want you to come in and like have them like each other. And I was At like, wow. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. So it's marriage counseling for a big old team of people that hate each other. Amazing, can't wait. And are, so they are, are there, are there uh, what are those, those foam bats they get there? <laughs> so I'm like, what do you think the fundamental problem is? And you know, the answer was the team wasn't functional we hired a new leader external we didn't promote anyone from within the new leader is having difficulty with this existing group and this existing group also doesn't get along with other internal groups and i was like wow okay and so i went in and we just did it like a regular design yeah it was funny they kind of they were compliance and yeah. they hated legal and so we built like this persona of this, this lawyer and oh my God, Adam, like they were building these, like they drew pictures of like a woman with like um, horn glasses and a beehive and like this, these awful people that were just brutal to work with. And as they're, we spent so much time with them t talking to me about the persona they built and me in a very gentle way, kind of saying, so legal is rigid and not willing to be collaborative but do you think maybe it's because they're super focused on mitigating risk? Like maybe a little bit, like it's, it's a good natured rigidity. Yes. And they're like, well, I mean, probably. And I'm like, so, and you're in compliance. So maybe you might maybe come across as rigid to other groups, but you're doing it out of a sense of duty to the organization, which is good. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're more like the legal group than you might think. And at the end of it, I was like, all I want you to do is have a little bit of empathy for legal yeah. and maybe do a little self-reflection about your own rigidity. Just, and at the end of it, they were all like, you know what, this, this is really hard and we're all working towards the same goal. And I'm like, okay, I can fly back home now. My work here is done. 
they had the whole emoji where the head explodes. They had this epiphany of like, oh, oh my goodness, there are other people. We're kind of the same. Oh, we can work together. Uh, it's my that's mind blowing. And, and like you see this too with even like the uh, like agile purists and DevOps purists, and there's all these there's all these different practices that basically get down to how people work. And if you back to your point. If you look to understand the way people work and the way others work in your organization, you know, life is better. Um, you, you see people trying to meld, and the reason I'm going this way is you see people trying to adopt design thinking and agile and DevOps and ITIL and all this stuff. And oh, by the way, there's some level of you know strategy in there somewhere. How do you see this all like how how can people be successful or how can organizations be successful or leaders? you know, take this all in, but not get so hung up in, you know, the, the purest nature of each of those practices, because there's, there's obviously pluses and minuses to each, and there's ways to, to bring those into your organization. But from a leadership perspective, who's looking to be more progressive and looking to really do a, a big massive transformation, how can they, you know, adopt these, you know, the practices that are going to work well for them? I think it, you know, I think to your point, they all are frameworks that have utility, all of them. Yeah. A lot of them are aligned in many ways. Like they're not so dissimilar from one another. That said, there's differences and people can get religion on one of them and just not be flexible. Yes. So I think it's a, it's not, um, we're going to do this tomorrow and this is the way the world's going to work. It's more of being really smart, getting someone that really knows these methodologies deeply mm -hmm. and then figuring out where to start with them. Cause you don't like turn the page. You don't go, we used to be waterfall Monday morning. We're going to be agile. Like that's not how it works. Yeah. And yeah. you do have to baby step it a little bit and you have, yeah. and every, I think the trick is, and I know you know this, every organization's different. Yes. Like they all have their own, there's a part of the organization that's going to make it harder or easier. And that, changes between industries, organizations, whatever. So you kind of got to figure out, first of all, who could lead the change? Like, I think this, everyone's going to march in the same direction on Monday morning, like never works. No. So how do you pick a subset of people who are willing to march into uncharted waters and just, mm -hmm. just focus on those guys. Don't worry about everyone else at first and then figure out, you know, what parts of that methodology actually align or isn't too big of a leap for them to do. Mm -hmm. And then you, the more you keep doing it, it's like anything. It's like, oh, that's not so scary. Now I can take the next step. Oh, now I see how agile and DevOps aligns to one another. So we're not actually fighting. We're like marching in the same direction. Yes. But this stuff takes time. Like people don't overnight fundamentally change the way they work. They just don't. No, they and don't. If, if you don't make it safe for them and you don't give them some people that are like-minded, we had a, a team call um, this week and you know both my boss and myself said to our team this stuff is hard but you're not alone it might feel sometimes like you're marching alone but mm -hmm. there's actually many people in the organization that are marching in the same direction and increasingly more so every day and when you look outside like I said to some of the more junior team members in the co-ops why do you think I send you cool podcasts why don't you think I send you these these networking events it's because yeah. sometimes the most enthusiastic people, me included, you're like, oh my God, like, I don't think I can, I don't think I can do this for another week. Yeah. But then I talk to someone like you and I'm like, okay, you're going through the same challenges. You know, we're part of the same virtual team of people trying to change the world. So like, yeah, okay, absolutely. 
have a coffee, start again. Fired up. It is hard, right? Because it is. It does take time, and there are, there's more naysayers than there are evangelists, unfortunately. Because, and this goes back to the whole execution and mediocrity and change is hard piece. And you know, it's it it is. It's very hard. It takes time, and it takes that investment. You know, I, I think it's a big deal. I think so. Like from my personal perspective, around, I think it's harder now for small to medium enterprises as well to do this because they don't have the resources whether it be the 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 talent because talent costs money or they're i, I see it as too they're, they're scaling at such a rapid pace like you take a a great success like a you know a, a company that's you know recently acquired a whole ton of funding and you take those who got caught flat-footed because of COVID. it's either one you you expose something for something for you know um a great success so anything that is digital or is is on a scaling trajectory or those that are caught flat-footed. In either case, those individuals they they need to adopt and they need to adopt quickly. But they don't know where to go. They don't they don't know how to adopt any of these principles, and they may not have it at their affordance. And I think that's a big problem for the recovery of the economy is that there are all these small to medium enterprises, even like scale-ups, that are, are going to continue to run into this. And I, I hope that more and more people will become involved. Like you see great things like Digital Main Street that are helping the the brick and mortars and, and obviously the successes like Shopify and others. But I think it's the, the white space of the big gap is the in-between there where there are companies that are moving along. They have success, they have hundreds of employees, but they need to know what to do next. Um, like you were part of Fierce Founders Accelerator at Communitech. Can you talk about some of the, you know, you know, words of wisdom or, or actionable things that organizations can look to, to do? Because obviously that scale, we want companies to scale and small medium enterprises are it's like 97 97% of the companies in the pro, in Canada are the, the small people if you will so it was i mean that was such an honor and a privilege to do um, the companies that i got to work with were all absolutely fabulous and fantastic mm-hmm. and i think my bias is this having kind of grown up in canada with these scaling companies yeah. we are really really smart Mm-hmm. we are really, really bad at sales, really bad, like exceptionally yeah. bad. Yeah. We, we suck at selling to each other and we suck at buying from each other. Like we, we are polite. Um, one of the first sales calls that I ever went on at RIM, I ended up talking to this guy in the US, this New York New Yorker. And he said oh, to me, yes. he was a business development guy. I was a business development girl. Yeah. And he just like cut right to the chase as New Yorkers tend to do. Uh-huh. He's like, hon, how do you get paid? And I just remember it like, it was like a sucker punch. I was like, how do I get paid? First of all, it's none of your business. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you ask me such private questions? (laughs) Yeah. Second of all, what does that matter? Like I'm going to do it for the goodness of the thing we're collectively trying to do together. Yeah. I I felt it was abrasive and rude and all these things. And so I, I just was at a loss for words, which obviously never happens for me. So there's this long pause and he says, babe, I just want to know, like, how, how does your commission structure work? I'm going to tell you how I get paid. And he basically went off on this is this is the structure. This yeah. is how I'm incented. Yeah. I just want to know how you're paid, not what you get paid, not, but just how, it works. how these two things might come together. And afterwards, when I reflected, I thought, okay, don't love the style, but I think what he was trying to do was mm-hmm. right. And so when I was at Communitech, you know, there's so many smart, 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 people building companies Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what they do is and the thing that i think we need to stop doing in canada 
is they're in this like shroud of kindness and love. It's like you're part of Communitech. There's all these supports and that is lovely. Like there are kind yeah. people that will help yeah. you. But my thing to all the ladies that were in my cohort was get in your car, go drive outside of the city. I don't want you talking to anyone in Waterloo region. Go to Toronto, go to Guelph, go to wherever you're going to go. Yeah. Go talk to someone you don't know yeah. and go pitch your thing. And they're like, but, but I have, you know, seven unpaid betas in Waterloo region. I'm like, that's like selling to your aunt. Yeah. Like, of course they're going to say yes. They're trying to be nice and supportive. That's not yeah. what you need. Yeah. Go try to sell your thing and see if someone's going to buy it for how much money. And yeah. if they don't want to buy it, why? If they don't want to pay for it, why? And then come back. And then, yes, we have massive engineering talent to like fix the thing. Yes. But if you don't know what people are willing to spend money on, then you got nothing. Exactly. It's and so I just see it over and over and over again, right? It's like this great company with all this potential that has $0 in sales. I'm like, that's not a company. That's corporate welfare. That's the government giving a bunch of smart people money to go play in a sandbox. Yeah. And, and like, I'm not a sales guy, but I, I find this so challenging because as even as an independent consultant, I'm always selling like all day, every day. And I, and I, I've been door closed on me a bazillion times told no landed deals. Um, but I, I find it crazy that there's not more focus on this. Like I, I, and not to toot my own horn, but I did write an article about wouldn't it be great if there was a sales bootcamp for tech sales that just you come in and I know there was one in Waterloo at one point. I don't know what happened to it. Um, but there's obviously great salespeople out there that do it for the enterprise that, um, could provide expertise and maybe they are in some capacities, but I guess I'm just, and, and it, it'd be great if they had this and they just had a constant rotation of this experiential, you don't want to call it school. You can call it whatever you want. Ecosystem, Petri dish place to go where people learn to do sales. You could pitch your stuff. You could bring in execs from Bay street to do it, to test it out or, or whoever, maybe it's from big pharma and, you know, pill Hill and Mississauga, whatever, whatever you're selling. And then you could just run that and then you could run a, a full, full gambit. And one, it, it drives the education and sales and, and how to do it and how to do it well. So you get immediate feedback loops Two, you'll probably generate clients out of this. I find one of the biggest problems. I don't want to like, you know, I, I still have a ton of stuff to know every day that I learn something new. I find out how stupid I am in so many regards. <laughs> um, but one of the things I've come to know is that I would prefer out of anything when running a business, Give me three clients or give me three referrals out of your network that will sit down with me, have a conversation and, and hear me out for just, as you said, for my pitch. And if it, if it's a get to know quickly, great. If it's not, then that's great. That's even better, obviously. And I think that would be highly advantageous and would allow us to, to your point, to buy, to buy local, to serve local, because you look at most companies in Canada and how do they get successful? They went to the U S it drives me crazy. And I think on the other side of the coin, I think people that are buyers are also crappy buyers in Canada. Yeah. We don't tell people no, and we don't give them feedback. Americans do like I sold in the U S and yeah. trust me, I knew exactly why I won a deal or lost a deal all yeah. the time. Yeah. They were very clear, very direct about it mm -hmm. in Canada. You know, it's like, Oh, you're really great. And we'll consider it next quarter. And, you know, and it's, I, I'm mentoring one startup and I went on a sales call with her and, you know, we left and I said, how do you think that went? I didn't say much. I just wanted to see kind of the yeah. interaction. Yeah. And she was like, it went really well. I'm like, that guy's not buying anything from you ever. 
No. And she's like, how did, but he didn't say that. And I said, I know I'm old. So like I'm old and crusty. So I can see things that you can't see because you're in your twenties and I'm in my Mm forties. But that guy was being polite. Yeah. And so, and it's a problem because if you can't figure out who's being polite and it is actually hard in Canada versus someone that's going to buy in the quarter or next quarter, you are going to run out of time. Yeah. And you know, I, I was working for a Toronto startup and one of the, so I was going like literally active listening and like whispering in their ear as they're selling. And in the, the morning I said, why are we not calling this guy? And she said, I really think they're going to go with Salesforce. And I said, how do you know that? Well, the last time I called him six months ago, he said that he was considering Salesforce. And I'm like, okay, this is a new, yeah, this is a New Yorker. Right. And I told her the story about, you know, how do you get paid? I'm like, pick up the phone. You don't know this guy. You're never going to see him in your life. You're calling him on the phone, call him on the phone and say, have you made a open with, have you made a decision with respect to Salesforce? Yeah. Don't waste his time. He's a New Yorker. Just ask him the question directly. And she did. She was terrified. I had to like 15 minutes of like pumping her up. I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's go. If he says he's made the decision, well, then you don't have to waste any mental energy worrying about what he's going to buy. You can cross him off your list and move on. And she says, I just wondered where you're at with Salesforce. And he said, your timing is impeccable. We're right in the middle of this. Talk to me about, you know, your competing product and why I should buy yours. (laughs) And she hung up the phone and she's like, really, I could just do that. I'm like, yes. It would save you time, stress. You would make more money. Just yeah. do that. All day, every day. It, oh, that's great. And I, I'm sure the, the the light that went off for her was just like amazing, right? Because it is. It is that people are too nice here. They don't want – and the, yeah, the flip side of it is is the, the person who you're trying to sell to, they get they get offended when you ask a, a blunt question. Like, are you – it's, it's obviously worded differently, but it's basically like, are you buying it or aren't you? And if you are, that's great. If you're not – that's fine too, but to your point, let's not waste each other's time with this. We both are trying to make money here, sell money. You know, we're trying to make money, save money, and, and you know, there are products and services and et cetera that come along with it. But yeah, like it's, it, I find it, I find it crazy, and it, I find it very frustrating and and, and angering in some cases. <laughs> when I sold at BlackBerry, I mean, Americans have this patriotism about buying American that we've not ever really had to the same extent and so I used to get asked all the time in the early days of RIM well I guess every Canadian has a Blackberry right and I'd laugh and I say no 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 that's not how it works in Canada we make something we make really cool shit and then we throw it over the border and if you guys like it well then it must be good then we buy it (laughs) and they're like really I said oh 100% we barely sold any Blackberries in Canada but we're watching and we're like oof you know our big brother uh, south of the border, they seem to think it's good. So if they think it's good, I mean, it must be good. Yes, uh, it's 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 fresh. I hope I hope it changes, right? Like there's this whole push. See, I think there's the the messaging with the whole push to buy local right now too could be used. But again, it's being used in the sense of brick and mortar, and obviously that's very important. There's a lot of people whose livelihoods entirely depend on that. I have friends and and others that that run brick and mortar of some sort, and so yeah, like super important. I think what is missed is that it doesn't have to be brick and mortar. It can be anything that is operating in the country. If you're looking at it, like you can look at a service and there will be a Canadian version of it. And so you could support that, whether it's a partnership with that startup or small to medium enterprise, whether it's buying from them, 
um, or even pushing people into to do that. Like I was talking to a woman the other day and she works in finance, but her hobby is actually building dresses and stuff like that. And she's had great success on the side to do that. And there's people that want more of it, um, but she's not inclined to go down that route quite yet because there's no, there's no incentive. There's no, there's no pick me up for her to go do that. And so I think that's something that, that needs to happen. Right. And, and there are evangelists for it like yourself and others, but I think it needs to be more. So I think it needs to be yeah, outside the, the Communitech bubble because you don't hear that in Toronto. You don't hear that in other areas. I hear that like I move, you know, I'm moving to Collingwood and I, I do hear that about a Collingwood. I'm, I'm part of a, a board up there now where it is very focused on sustainability, local uh, collaboration amongst the communities to grow that so they can create this hub and ecosystem to do that. And I don't, and I haven't gotten far enough to understand if they mean beside brick and mortar, but that's the one that I'll be pushing is outside of just brick and mortar, think bigger, right? Think international, but it's derived from uh, within the province and within the country. Like we can't, the, the, the hill that I will die on is we can't keep doing insulin. We invented insulin. We're super ethical. Yeah. We, we basically gave away the patent. Americans commercialized it. Now we're in a position that Americans are coming to Canada and buying the thing that we invented, that we have made no money on yeah. at, to the point that we're risking our own national supply. It's yeah. like, guys, like not only is it poor economics and just poor use of time and money no. it, it actually has real ramifications like this is really stupid to keep doing but yet we seem to keep doing the same thing over and over and we pat ourselves in the back about we have all these patents and whatever and that's important but <clears throat> it's also important to basically support all those people and not just with government money like yeah the private sector should invest in people that are local yeah. You know, getting people cut to come back to Canada and scooping all the foreign students and just having a super smart nation is yeah. step one. Mm -hmm. Step two is b being able for them to have an ecosystem in our country. It's possible. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. There, there's enough money. There, there's enough smart people, to your point, to, to do that. And I, I do think that is a problem that they there isn't that support for it. There is this, oh, we need to go rely on the government handouts because the the private sectors don't want to invest in it and i i think it's crazy because it'll come back as um or, or a solid return on their investment if you will um in some form or another however it's paid whether it's sustainability whether it's growth whether it's branding and marketing whether it's actual financial return because they decided to invest in something and i agree like the the, the private sector needs to step up to do that to do more of it i guess and to invest more of it because and there's enough intelligence in those private sector organizations that they will be, they, they will have the incentive of those individuals that they're doing the greater good, if you will, and that they're benefiting the economy of the country, that they will then want to do that. So you will have the horsepower, the tools, and the intelligence of private sector to only build things up. And they, that's what they do in the US, but they don't do it here um, because we're too nice about it. And the US is like, we're about capitalism and it's sink or swim. Um, and that's why the, that's the whole American dream and how you can do anything down there. And obviously we have our own unique culture and that's great. And, you know, I'm very proud, uh, to be a, you know, proud Canadian. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't need to pivot and change how we do things. Absolutely. If all things are equal by Canadian, sometimes yeah. you can't, but if all things are equal by Canadian. Yeah, I agree. 
All right, we are at time. Uh, thank you so, so much. Uh, that was an amazing conversation. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, look forward to having you back and continuing conversation. Um, any final words of where people can find you? Do you like uh, uh, you know, Twitter or other places or if people want to get in touch with you um, uh, or any final thoughts you may have? I'm on LinkedIn. I am a rabid Twitterer. It is my number one addiction. So uh, if you want to hear all the things I like to rant about, that is the best place to, to find it. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I would just say to people to, to try to be the change. Like, you know, I think that there's a huge need in the public sector for private talent. Um, I think the, the private sector, if you're in a company, um, go try to do shit. Yeah. Like, like the we don't have time is precious and the world's spinning and there's there's it's the perfect opportunity because everything is in flux right now go just do the damn thing yeah. that's because yeah. i feel like so many people have this idea in their head go do it the yeah. worst thing that's going to happen is it won't work and you'll get smarter that's the worst thing that will happen i love it go do it get her done <laughs> awesome all right thank you so much again appreciate your time thank you all right, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to have more, you can check us out at fact.ca. That's T-H-A-C-K dot C-A. And you can find more podcast listening as well as other articles and great information around ways of working and digital transformation. All right, thanks so much.